Welcome to the Addicts Report, where we travel the world in search of music that's good for something. I'm your host, Rick Busby. We'll be right back with my co-host, Stephen Doster, to introduce today's episode. In the meantime, enjoy the musical break, and we'll be right back. There's enough for everyone. There's enough for everyone. Every living thing under the sun. On this episode of The Actress Report, we're going to be visiting with cosmic cowboy musical legend Bob Livingston. She lives down south where the rivers age, goes back to the original spirit. And the India inks flowing over the page, down to the original spirit. is still young and she is one among the original spirits welcome back to the attic sport i'm your host rick busby here with my co-host stephen doster in just a little bit we're going to be playing for you an interview that we did with bob livingston back in march of 2016 we visited with Bob. I did not know Bob at the time that we met with him. Stephen's known him for many, many years. I've just known Bob by his musical reputation. He is one of the original members of the Los Gonzo Band, a true cosmic cowboy from the 70s progressive country era here in Austin, Texas. He's played with such uh, folks as Michael Martin Murphy, Jerry Jeff Walker, Ray Wiley Hubbard. What is it with the three names with these guys way back when, Stephen? What, do you have anything to say about that? Like, these guys had three names. like you know. I know a bunch of them did. Uh, but Bob Livingston's only got two. And uh, it's a real honor to have him on the program today. Bob is a quintessential part of that whole story about the Cosmic Cowboy, Progressive Country, whatever you want to call it. I, I just called it a great Texas music. and Part of a lot of seminal records from Viva Terralingua to uh, Geronimo's Cadillac by uh, Michael Martin Murphy. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of records are a big part of Texas history, uh, music history. You know, here on the Attica Sports, Stephen, we talk a lot about uh, a sense of place. Uh, as we've been telling these stories on the Atticus Report over the course of time, we've begun to note how when people follow their muse, they wind up kind of also traveling the world. And in some way, their story becomes part of like um, the story becomes about where they're from, where they went to, where they traveled to, what they become. And in the case of Bob Livingston, of the people that we've interviewed before on the Atticus Report. His was really interesting. You know, he started in Lubbock, Texas, made his way to New Mexico for a little bit, back to Dallas, and that led him to a little gig in Colorado. And then from Colorado, was connected with Michael Murphy and moved out to California briefly, and then back to Austin for all that that was going on back in the 70s. And then, of course, traveling around, playing that music during those eras. And then after all that was over, he wound up becoming a musical ambassador for the U.S. State Department as the part of the Arts Envoy program. I know he spent a lot of time in India, which we'll hear about in the interview and everything, but he's literally traveled the world following 
music. And as, as, as we'll hear in the story that he tells, he, he the first thing that he learned was, was uh, nothing could be finer than to be in Carolina in the morning on the ukulele. That's where his journey began. And there's so much that story that uh, I found fascinating, little tidbits of, of things that you wouldn't know otherwise unless you were hearing it from someone who was on the scene. And at the end of the day, at the end of the day, despite being a musician, a musical ambassador, a cosmic cowboy, part of musical history in Texas and so forth, at the end of the day, Bob is a great storyteller. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, absolutely. The uh, the traveling is a big part of that story, too, and, and it, it keeps it really interesting. And his ties to India uh, have become a big part of his life that I know. Now, when he was uh, doing his uh, music ambassadorship, I don't know that it was with the Arts Envoy program. It was a different, might have been a different program, but it was the same kind of thing. And he went to many countries, which I think he mentions uh, uh, we'll be talking about. But uh, his, uh, in particular, his relationship with the uh, the music of India and his uh, efforts to to bring the West and the East together and his Cowboys and Indians productions that he does and, and uh, around the country. So uh, you're also kind of part of the arts envoy program and I understand that over the years that he's done it, it's probably been known by different kinds of things. Yeah. Different probably names, had the same intent, same, same thing, but you're also part of the, the uh, U S state department's arts envoy program. And you've got another trip up to Africa, but I think this time you're going to Northern Africa up around the Sahara desert. Is that correct? That's cr- uh, correct. Uh, Mortania. And the, I met the ambassador. He happened to be in Austin during South by Southwest. And he told me, never say a, a Sahara Desert because it's like saying desert, desert. <laughs> 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 because it's just Sahara to them just means a desert. And uh, so it'll be interesting. I have no idea what to expect uh, of it other than they, uh, like all parts of the world, music is a big part of their culture and th- their language. Um, I know I'm I'm ready for a great adventure. Well, I'm sure we'll be hearing about that in future Atticus Reports after you uh, return from that trip. Um, and we're going to play a song here in the musical break. And after the musical break, uh, we're going to go right back into our interview, which we conducted with Bob Livingston recently. We know you're going to really enjoy that, so we want you to stick around. You're with the Atticus Report. I'm Rick Busby. I'm Stephen Doster. And we'll be right back after the musical break with our interview with cosmic cowboy legend Bob Livingston. Not be broken. It took a little boy to tell me that not so long ago. And through the eyes of children, there's something that they can teach us, something we're all searching for, yet already know. And love cannot be broken. Love is the only hope there is for this broken world There's something that can't be spoken Something steadfast, not hollow So the good can flourish in these troubled times 
Thank you and welcome back to the Addicts Report. I'm your host, Rick Busby, here with my co-host, Stephen Doster, and we're sitting with cosmic cowboy legend, Bob Livingston, and visit and hear his stories. Stephen and I have been looking forward to this show for a little while now. I met Bob a couple of months ago back at the Austin Songwriters Group Symposium. Stephen's known him for many years and looking forward to hearing his tales about how he came to be sitting in this chair in room 22 of the Star of Texas Inn, right in the middle of the University of Texas in Austin campus. Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm super duper, and uh, again, I'm very happy to be here with Bob today, a uh, very essential Texas artist that's, whose story is uh, just a, one of wonder to me, and we'll be hearing about it today. And Bob, thanks for being here. Uh, good to be here with both of you. I'm going to start with, uh, let's start with Lubbock, where you're from. Um, how did uh, your music, how did you fall into music in your life? Well, my brother was a musician. He was in a lot of bands in Lubbock, and um, you know he was my, probably my first influence. He he played and taught me some chords. My first instrument was a ukulele. A lot of people, you know, I bought it with three and a half books of green stamps, uh, <laughs> and uh, remember those. And and I had that ukulele. The first song I ever learned was "Nothing Could Be Finer Than to Be in Carolina in the Mall," yeah. and I could play that. And uh, that got me a lot. That got me through a lot of doors. And I just became, you know, I, I just, I ended up putting those those bottom two strings on the guitar and making chords and realizing that I could entertain people and going to church camp and places like that and being a, I just decided this is what I want to do, especially when I got my first gig, which was at a, a youth group at a Jewish synagogue. A friend of mine, Michael Evanson in Lubbock, uh, paid me five bucks to play for 30 minutes. And I had been chopping cotton, you know, for a dollar an hour and blistered. I'm redheaded, freckle face, and I'm totally sunburned <laughs> out of my mind and, and not having a good time. But listening to my little red transistor radio, uh, of the, all this great music. But when I got the gig, I made five dollars and it was wow. like a, a, you know, more than you know, three quarters of a day's work. And I just said, wow, this is it. So, I got a few more gigs, uh, and by the time I got to high school, um, <clears throat> I was playing a little more, but I was into football, so things would always kind of take me away from from really my true love, which was music, but by the time I got to college, uh, that's when I started uh, playing more and more and playing out. and. Uh, my biggest influence beside my brother was when I went, I'd heard about this guy named Joey Ely mm -hmm. and he was playing in Lubbock and I went to this little club, uh, to see him play. And he was sitting on a super reverb amp with a hi-hat and he had this funky, uh, Gibson J45 that he had bought off some bum on Venice, Venice beach and it and it had seashells glued all over it. <laughs> and he had ripped the seashells off, but the glue was still there with all this glitter, and it was just this <laughs> funky scene. And he's totally nonchalant and, and blasé about his performance, and he fidgets, and he mumbles, and he wasn't in. But he was playing this great stuff that I'd never heard before. Candyman, Baby, Let Me Follow You Down, some old country thing, Jimmy Rogers. And to me... This was the first time a guy relatively my age, he was a little older, was playing this incredible, you know, he was, you know, great. And it impressed me so much. The next day I went to a pawn shop and bought me a, 
a, a hi-hat, because that was the backbeat. <clears throat> and I borrowed my brother's twin reverb amp, got some sort of guitar, plugged into it, and I modeled myself after Joe Ely. I'm going out where the lights don't shine so bright. I'm going out where the lights don't shine so bright. When I get back, you can treat me like a Saturday night. Lubbock has a rich background, rich musical heritage. What was that? What was that like growing up there with that kind of influence around already? You know, I was unaware of it. Butch and Jimmy, Dale Gilmore, Butch, um, uh, Butch Hancock, and Joe Ely, they were all about three years older than me. So and when you're that age, that's, that's light years away. Uh, and so <clears throat> I, I was aware of the Flatlanders, which they had, they had formed. By the time I got to college, I got to see them. But for the most part, I mean, I played football. My parents were strict Methodists, if you can be strict and be a Methodist. And I didn't, I didn't know too much, you know, uh, uh, about the music scene. It was, it was much later that I actually was able to, you know, when I got to college, by this time I meet Ely and everything. But in 1969, I got a really good draft lottery number. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, it meant I was never going to be drafted. So I, I left school. Immediately. Can you remember what number it was? 309. Good. I'll never forget. But, and so, Did you, you go know, to college? I went to Texas Tech. Okay. So I was going to Tech. I was playing in my own little club called The Attic. Um, Ely would come play for me on Sundays. I was aware of some of these guys. Of course, I'm aware of Buddy Holly. Uh, he, was gone, he was long gone by then. Uh, Waylon Jennings. I listened to a lot of music. But as far as that Lubbock scene, I really almost, you know, it's like light years away if you're into something else. Right. If you're, if you're staying there, you don't necessarily see it as a scene. Yeah. It's only afterward that I can look back and go, God, that was going on. I'm writing a book right now for Texas Tech Press. And so the bands that I knew were bands like The Sparkles, The Fabulous Sparkles. Gary Nunn was in it, Lucky Floyd. There was a band called The Shucks, a band called The Rhythm Masters band called the Velveteens. These bands who are who I, you know, went and danced to at sock hops and stuff. So as far as the singer-songwriters, I I didn't really uh, know them. You would end up going uh, west, the west young man, to uh, Red River to make music, right? In uh, New Mexico. So I had this club called The Attic. It was your club. It was my club. It was in a basement there on University Avenue. I talked this guy and I needed a place to play. And I'd seen Ely and I'd figure I'm going to, you know, I'm in a fraternity at this point. Uh, I get all my frat rat friends to come down and uh, bring beer and stuff. We sold pizza. And uh, so the, the motto was live entertainment and live pizza. And it was <laughs> called the attic and it was in this basement. <clears throat> People would flood in there and I'd play Proud Mary and uh Creed's Clearwater and Motown stuff and, you know, just, and they're all singing at the top of their voice, breaking beer bottles and yeah. stuff. And so one night after the show, this woman came up to me, young girl, and she said, hey, you know, I really like the way you sing and play. And, and, and 
I go and spend every summer in this place called Red River, New Mexico. Have you ever heard of it? And I said, no, I haven't. Well, uh, there's a guy there. His name is Jack Emery, and he has a restaurant club called the Riverview Inn, and he gets somebody to play every summer up there. Would you be interested in doing it? Uh, I, you know, I'll give you about a week to think about it, but you would, it'd be June through August. I said, I don't need a week to think about it. I'm in. And so I left Lubbock uh, there first part of June and drove out, and I played that summer in Red River. Now, one after being there about two or three weeks, uh, Jack Emery, the owner, said, uh, Bob, you need to go down the street and hear the boys. And I go, the boys? And he goes, yeah, they got their own club. And the boys were this group from Dallas called Three Faces West. And it was Rick Fowler, Wayne Kidd, and this wise-ass named Ray Hubbard. And they had their own club, The Outpost. They did two shows a night. They were funny. They had bits that they worked up. They did great songs. It was, once again, as eye-opening as Ely or even more. Guys relatively my age doing such a polished show. I was green, just straight out of love, playing mainly what I hear on the radio. Right, right. And, uh, one of the most embarrassing things that happened was after I met him, you know, after the show, they, we stuck around and Jack said, this is my new boy playing in my place down the street. Uh, Bob, why don't you sit down and do him a new song? Sit down and do him a song. And I go, okay. I was just, you know, eager. And uh, he says, oh, play that early morning rain. So I, in the early morning rain, with, I was very, you know, earnest about it. And I'm, I'm, Singing early morning rain, and I look up, and these guys are all kind of rolling their eyes and sniggering and looking at each other, and and I knew I had done something tragically unhip. I didn't know what it was, but I knew I've done something that that that's just is not cool. And how am I going to get out of this? So at the end. The other two guys, Rick and Wayne, kind of melded off into the night, but Hubbard stuck around. Said, come over here. I want to give you some advice. He goes, number one, don't ever sit down when you sing. You command the audience. You stand up. It gives you more energy. People look at you. You can move. Don't ever sit down. Number two, don't ever sing Early Morning Rain again. (laughs) He said, if you're going to do a Gordon Lockfoot song, choose something obscure. And this is what I started realizing. These guys were playing. They didn't write all their songs by any stretch, but they did songs that you didn't hear on the radio, but still great songs. Mm -hmm. Johnny Vandiver, Keith Sykes, uh, Jerry Jeff. Mm -hmm. uh, And I'd never heard this stuff before. And then the songs that really stuck out were Mike Murphy songs. I just want to be a cosmic cowboy. I just want to ride in a rope and a hoot I just want to be a cosmic cowboy A supernatural country, a rock and blue This guy from Dallas, he had already written Wildfire. This is 1969. He had already written Wildfire. I, I didn't know that. Wow. And uh, I thought, this is 
great stuff. So I started change my repertoire started changing, and um, but school was beckoning, and the summer was ending, and I was only in school because the Vietnam War was raging, and so the end of that August and the blue spruce turning blue, I drove out of. Red River back to school, not really knowing what I was going to do, but having a great experience. Very awesome. Well, uh, what year did you end up going to Los Angeles, and how did that come about? Well, so this is 1970. Uh, The first draft lottery was December 2nd, um, 1970. Uh, I got a great number, 309, and I quit school. And uh, finished out the semester. My brother, who was that musician, was in Aspen. And he worked, uh, he was playing this club called Anchorage. And he said, come up. And it was in the dead of winter. He said, come up and and, uh, you can play après ski, which is right, you know, like four to six slot where the skiers are coming down the mountain. And it's a wild, noisy, loud, packed place. I'm playing John Denver lives in Aspen. He comes in. Uh, these different people show up. And so one night, um, this guy named Randy Fred, he was an agent from Los Angeles. He comes in and he hears me. And after the show, he comes up and says, I think I could get you a record deal. Why don't you come out to L.A.? Well, what an offer. So I did. I I, I show up in Los Angeles there early um, uh, I guess it was, it, was, it was actually the first lottery was December 2nd of 69. And so early January, February, March-ish, when at the end of the ski season, March or so, I show up in Los Angeles. And sure enough, the guy gets me a record deal on Capitol Records. And they gave me just enough money to buy a Datsun pickup truck and a Martin guitar. And I'm waiting to do this record. I get some gigs here and there. And then I'm driving down this dusty dirt road in the middle of Los Angeles one day. And the hand of fate just kind of came out and steered my Datsun over the side of the road where there was this hitchhiker. And he jumped in the car and we traded each other our life stories. And and, uh, turned out he was from Germany and worked on foreign cars. And he says to me, the only other Texan I know is from Dallas. He's a musician too. His name is Mike Murphy. I just thought, God. Well, that guy became the governor of California, but it's another story. <laughs> no, but so this guy is, this is true. And I, uh, not that he was Schwarzenegger or anything, but the guy, I said, give me his name and number. It was amazing, you know, Murphy, who I'd, you know, kind of idolized and never met the guy. And that night, uh, I, uh, he gave Murphy my name and number. Murphy calls me up. Who are you? Why am I supposed to call you? I tell him about Red River, Three Faces West. I said, your songs are as good as anything I've heard since the Beatles. He goes, you know what? You're a genius, and we need to meet. <laughs> and so he invited me up. He lived in Wrightwood, California, which is in the foothills of San Gabriel's, and I went up there, and within 30 minutes or 40 minutes of meeting, Murphy said, you just got to move up here. You got to move up here. Los Angeles is nowheresville, man. You got to move up here in the mountains. Come on, come on, let's go find you a place right now. And I'm going, wait a minute. And we drove around, and he found me. A, we found this little A-frame house 
for, for you know, like $75 a month or something. And uh, next thing I know, I'm living in Wrightwood with Murphy, and we become fast friends. <laughs> and uh, at, at some point, well, I go through the winter, get snowed in a couple of times. I'm trying to get this record deal going. Capital, meanwhile, you know, I was telling you earlier that they were awash in Beatles money, and so they had signed all these singer-songwriters trying to throw it against the wall, see what stuck. And at some point, the, the president of Capital is fired. None of it's working. Everybody is fired. The art department, the publicity department, the A&R department, they're all fired, and they let 150 artists go. I was one of them. I have no deal. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? There was no plan B. That's the epiphany that I had writing this book. I was like, why didn't I do something? There was no plan B. Everything was on that. I never considered anything else. I didn't know what to do. Murphy comes to my house. I tell him a sad story. He says, man, I got some gigs back in Texas. Why don't you come and play bass with me? I said, I don't know how to play bass. You'll learn. And he handed me a Fender Precision Bass. And that is the day that went from me playing my own songs and my musical pursuits from becoming a background musician. And I played with Michael Murphy on his tours and ended up making records. How did uh, you and Mike Murphy get to meet Bob Johnson? We had pl- There's a little club in Dallas. It was a, uh, a famous folk club. Everybody in the world played there called the Rubiot. It was on McKinney Avenue. We played, we'd play the Rubiot, then we'd go up to Colorado and play the Cafe York, and then we'd go down to, you know, just, we were on these tours. Then we'd go back to Los Angeles, and but we were still living up in Wrightwood, but then we would go back play another tour of Texas and play the Rubiot. And there was a guy there that would come to see his name was R.A. Caldwell. And he was just kind of a funky dude drinking beer and sitting out in a beer garden. And he would say, yeah, Bob Johnson, he's a brother. He's a brother, Bob Johnson. And I'm thinking, who's Bob Johnson? Turns out it's Bob Johnston, the who had produced Nashville Skyline, Blonde on Blonde, Alive at Folsom Prison, Sounds of Silence, all these incredible records. And he's this producer, big time Nashville producer, who happens to be from Texas. And uh, he says, you need to meet Bob Johnston. And I'm thinking, well, one day, finally, I just said, well, if, if you're such a brother, get him here. <laughs> so he did. And one afternoon, 2.30 in the afternoon or the night before we played, uh, Bob Johnston shows up for a audition and walks in the door and immediately says to us, where's the piano? I just wrote a song on the way from the airport. I need a piano. So we, he sat out at this piano on stage. He played a couple of songs. We started playing with him. He ends up saying, I didn't come here to play music for you. Which one of you is Murphy? He had never even entered. He goes, I'm Bob Johnston. So Murphy says, that's me. We played literally one or two lines of the first song, and Johnson said, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. I don't need to hear any more. You've got a record deal. No rain and 
the weather got warm Broke down and sold my farm Heading for the silver strike I took my wife Calico silver Gave us life And I was lucky enough to get tagged in on that. I was there. So he says, you guys show up in Nashville on Wednesday. And we borrowed Murphy's mother's Buick. And we drove up and took along a poet named Charles John Corto, who had written songs and he had been the living room poet for Crosby, Stills and Nash and Graham Nash was one of his big patrons, produced an album on, on uh, MCA or something for him. And he was a poet, and he was a crazy-looking guy, looked like Einstein. So the three of us drive through, you know, Tennessee up to Nashville, and we go up and stay at Johnston's house, and it's just me and Murphy, and we record 24 songs in two days first and second take. And Johnston is the guy who just said, that's just beautiful. He didn't, he wouldn't take a second take except on a few songs. He would just say, I don't need to hear, you know, that's good. That's perfect. You can't do it any better. And then they went up later and overdubbed drums oh, wow. and guitar. Uh, and here I am a guy that's never played with a drummer and I'm playing bass and I'm all over the place and I'm not thinking about boom, boom, boom. None of that. None of that's in my consciousness at this time. The drummer is Kenny Buttery. And I just felt sorry for Buttery, you know, and I told him years later after kind of meeting him, you must have had a hard time. Oh, man, I just, you know, yeah, it was kind of weird, but I just followed. And um, so they entered, and that's the, that album was Geronimo's Cadillac. That was, that particular album was, man, that song was big for me. I was like about a sophomore in high school over in the Beaumont Port Arthur area. And, we were blessed to have a pretty decent FM radio station there for it being Beaumont Port Arthur. Yeah. And they played a whole range of stuff like KGSR was in its heyday here in mm-hmm. Austin. It was like that back there in Beaumont. We'd hear everything from Deep Purple to Redheaded Stranger and so forth. Right. And I can remember hearing Geronimo's Cadillac the first time. And it, it today, even today, if I was ranking my favorite songs from that era, it would be number one on my on my top whatever list. I just would have always loved that song. There was something really raw. There was nothing else like it that I'd heard at that point in time. Every, Unbelievable. People love it. I still do it. I do it in my solo show. You know, I'll do that and tell, kind of tell a story and put them in the scene and then uh, Geronimo's Cadillac. People remember that song. It's put Geronimo in jail down south Where it couldn't look the gift horse in the mouth Sergeant, Sergeant, don't you feel something wrong with your automobile? Warden, warden, listen to me. Be brave and set Geronimo free. Governor, governor, isn't it strange? You never see a car on the Indian Range. Get up. 
killer. When I first came to Austin, that's probably the first song I can think of that was from somebody from Texas, and that uh, and I was uh, I I'd come from England and had been uh, listening to uh, Nick Drake and John right. Martin and people like that, and I was getting turned on to this Texas music. I'm born in Texas, but. Um, that song stuck out to me. And one of the things I could never, uh, when I would hear him, uh, uh, Michael, sing that song and then hear Wildfire, which I just found out just now that he had written it previously, earlier. But the the difference in the singing was always stuck as a kid. I couldn't believe uh, uh, how he sounds on on Geronimo's Cadillac compared to the the almost operatic uh, Wildfire. Murphy was suffering from nodules on his vocal cords, and he did these songs way too high. Geronimo's Cadillac was recorded in D, D Dog, which is way up there. They put Geronimo in jail down to. Now he does it in A. We went down to several steps, and, and I do it in G, which is even lower. Mm-hmm. And, but he his voice had that sound, and he. He, he didn't understand at the time that, that it was real scratchy, real high, and he was singing way too high. He ended up going to a voice coach. They, and, of course, he had the, had the nodules removed, severe surgery in a way, because you can't talk or sing for two right. months. See, I grew up as a singer, so people, Stephen, I've talked about this before. Like, he grew up as a guitar player, and he's learning guitar, and I'm singing everybody. Like, yeah. I would try to sing everybody. I'd sing Barry Manilow, and yeah. I'd sing Kenny Loggins, and I'd sing Deep Purple. It's like I'd sing everything. And that's the one. That song was one of those ones that I could never get to because of that quality, that, that raspiness, yeah. and how high it was. Absolutely. It was one that I could like never tackle. It's like today, it's even on my little <laughs> wish list, the bucket list, to, to learn a version of that song that I could actually go, sing. go down to A or D. Reminded me kind of, a, of like a high Tom Waits or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. So it's an but, amazing vocal performance. But it's good to know that he that he was having actually challenges. It was more like a, he was. I guess it was, was it an untrained thing or was he just really ailing? He at that was. He was. He was trained, but he, he was a folky and and. He, you know, Murphy had this big history of, 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 you know, being in. He went to North Texas State. He went to school with B.W. Stevenson, Hubbard, oh, wow. uh, Steve Frumholz, Travis Holland. They were all in this folk club in North Texas. <laughs> and uh, and at some point, Murphy has this idea to go out to and go to school, take creative writing at UCLA. And like he says today, I fell into this nest of left-wing pinkos out there and I was under their influence for a while. But, uh, he came, went out and he, worked, he wrote for Screen Gems. He wrote, um, he, he, he cut, you know, he wrote, What Am I Doing Hanging Around for the Monkees? Mm-hmm. What am I doing hanging around? I should be on that train and gone. I should be riding on that train to San Antonio. wrote uh, Boy from the Country and Patty Page recorded it and so he was a songwriter you know a nine to five guy living out there yeah. 
So after uh, you did a, a couple of records with uh, Michael, and at one point, um, I believe the story is he he went uh, to London to mix the uh, second record. Was it his second Cosmic record? Cowboy? Cosmic Cowboy, and uh, I think Gary P. Nunn was uh, playing in the band with you guys at that time, and he went with them. Uh, you were telling me an interesting story about about that. We uh, we recorded uh, this is right after his surgery, and uh, when we were rehearsing the album, he had to do a second album, and it couldn't be put off. Sometimes somehow back then, record companies tell you what to do, and you just did it. You didn't say, "I need a year," you know, like they do now. Right. It was like an album a year, and you're you have to do this. So he had no time to recover, <clears throat> and all the the record was actually rehearsed at my house on Lake Travis and Murphy would show up and he had one of these yellow legal pads. He wasn't speaking. He had had the surgery. Doctor said no talking, even whispering. And he would have this written out. Bob, I just wrote this new song last night. It's called Blessing in Disguise. Come over to the piano. I'll whistle the melody. And he would walk up the piano and play these beautiful chords and go... And I would sing, it was a blessing in disguise. And he would shake his head. <laughs> it was a blessing in disguise. He would nod his head. So it was very frustrating for this guy. And I would rehearse the band, sing all the songs. Well, at the end of this time, we go to Nashville. We hadn't heard him talk. And he really wasn't ready. And he was... I say he wasn't ready because that record was another big seminal record in Texas history. But everything was tense. We had been, also been playing with Jerry Jeff. We made an album with Jerry Jeff, which is called just Jerry Jeff Walker. It's the Brown album. It has L.A. Freeway on it. So the band was playing with Jerry Jeff, too. And we would do these tours. And then we'd go out with Murphy. And here suddenly we're in Nashville. Things come to a head. And the whole band quits and goes back to Jerry Jeff to join up with him for good. Everybody but Gary Nunn, who doesn't want to leave and wants to hang out with Murphy because he has a song on this album. And he wants to protect his intellectual property, more or less, called The Song of the South Canadian River. Beautiful song. And, well, they go to London to mix the album at Abbey Road Studios. Gary's wandering around by himself, all depressed and alone, He's staying in this flat in London where the landlords had turned all the steam heaters off at 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day to get people out on the street work and go to school. You don't need to be inside. Get, get out. You're going to school. Why do you need to have the heat on? So Gary wasn't going to school. He didn't have a job. And he's just freezing to death in this, in this room. And he picked up a guitar. <laughs> and the first thing that came out of his mouth was, well, it's cold over here. And I swear I wish they'd turn the heat on. That was the first verse. And it becomes London Homesick Blues and quintessential Texas record. Well, he comes back and um, he was so depressed and just pissed at the music business in general that he was quitting and going back to enroll in, back in pharmacy school at Tech where he had was studying to be a pharmacist. And he was just about to leave when we lassoed him 
and took him down to Luckenbach, where Jerry Jeff had this world-class recording uh, studio, a mobile unit set up in Luckenbach. They had to rewire the entire town of Luckenbach for electricity <laughs> just to cover this. And he said, I'm going to make this record, which ended up to be in Viva Trilingual. And it's, it was all Jerry Jeff songs. He's writing them on the fly. He had, I, you know, I, I played Redneck Mother for him, so he learned Redneck Mother. And uh, he, we recorded all week. And then at some point, Gary plays that song, Line Homesick Blues. Jerry Jeff take, you know, we, we were making his record. Said, that's a great song. But we didn't really think much about it. But Jerry Jeff did. Because on Saturday night, we did a live show and recorded all the stuff we had done all week, plus some stuff from the first album, L.A. Freeway, Charlie Dunn, but just to see if we get live recordings. It was live in the, in the place was packed. Uh, and at some point, he turns to Gary and says, play that song you played about London the other afternoon. And Jerry, Gary was like, you want me to play that? And the band had only heard it once, had never rehearsed it. And Gary starts playing, Wind down on your luck. And the crowd goes nuts. And they sing it over and over at the end of it, uh, which we finally were kind of figuring it out as the song goes on. <laughs> the producer runs out and says, that was incredible. What an ovation we've got. It's a great song, but the tape broke. You gotta do it again. <laughs> and that's when Gary Nunn says on this record, you can go back and listen to it, Beaver Lingua. He says, I gotta put myself back in that place. And does the song. And so the second time we'd ever really the third time we'd ever heard it, and the second time we'd ever played it. Gotta put myself back in that place again. Well, when you're down on your luck And you ain't got a buck In London, you're a goner Even London Bridge Has fallen down And moved to Arizona Now I know why And I'll substantiate Rumor that the English sense of humor is drier than the Texas sand. You can put up your dukes or you can bet your boots, but I'm leaving just as fast as I can. I wanna go home with the armadillo. Good country music from Amarillo and Abilene. The friendliest people and the prettiest women you ever seen. And that's what's on the record. That's now. the cut of the record. Wow. So, so that became Beaver Terlingua. Yeah. And it was just this giant hit. You know what I like about that story is how long it takes to play itself out to get to that yeah. moment, like the things that had to have happened to yeah. put Gary in that situation yeah. to write that song to bring it all the way back to that moment. If he hadn't have gone to London, if he hadn't have been freezing to death in the flat, yeah. 
yeah. you know? And to come up with the line, which ended up being the second verse, it was my idea. I said, you ought to say when you're down on your luck. Don't say it's cold over here. And he goes, oh, okay, we tried that. So uh, he was cold. It's a true story. He was depressed. He was homesick. And it, and it became the theme song for Austin City Limits for 26 years. After, after that period, I guess that's a peak period throughout there. They probably sit here and tell stories all day long of various parts of that whole progressive country era and everything. Right. What happens on the other end for you? Like whenever it kind of sunsets on that era, the go- or at least the golden age of that era, then what happens? Well, I played with Jerry Jeff for quite a long time. I did uh, manage to go off a couple of times in there uh, and play with Ray Wiley Hubbard on his group and his bands, which was... First time I was ever really making any money, 
in the music business. Ray was so fair, he split everything four ways. Yeah. And uh, if we were making $5,000 for a gig, he took two and gave us each a thousand. And it was John Inman uh, and Paul Piercy was the drummer. Right. Yeah. And remember Paul, and, and I was the bass player. And we, we tried the Los Gonzo band for a while. The band that backed up Jerry Jeff, we called it the Los Gonzo band. We made three albums our, on MCA and Capitol. So we, we had that career going on too, but it was never as, you know, as successful as Jerry Jeff. And so at some point I go back with Ray Wiley. I play for a while, get back with Jerry Jeff. Um, but at some point, uh, and I'm, I'm married at this point to Iris and we've got two sons. She's enamored with India and Stokes going off and taking the boys and he's living over in India. And, uh, it's, you know, I say, God, you know, my family's over there and I'm, I'm coming off a tour with Jerry Jeff who just suddenly decides I'm going to take about four months off. And I, this is the chance for me to go and see what it's all about. So I go to India and this is 1981 and come back and play with Jerry Jeff for another couple of years, but always kind of go back and, and do these three, four five, even six month stays. So in 86, uh, I met a, a man in India. He was an American. He was a Fulbright scholar. His name was Frank Block. He was over there doing gigs for the State Department. And he said, hey, you know, if you can convince the State Department you're an expert in anything from legal aid like I am, he was a legal aid specialist, to country music, you may be able to get a gig. And... I go to I go to Madras and I audition for the U.S. State Department. Walk in the door. I got this idea on a history of American folk and country music. That you needed an angle. Right. You couldn't just go. You, know, you needed it. And I'd heard about a guy named Billy Stevens who had done a blues show. So I say I'll do a history of American folk and country music. And about uh, and John Inman is with me. We had both gone to India by this point. So he goes with me. We're playing for this guy. The guy's looking at us like, I have no idea what he's even thinking. And he says, do something for me. I do a song and then uh, we'll do something else. And then about the third song, he just stops and says, hold on a minute. Do you mind? And he reached down in back of his desk and he pulled out a banjo. And he said, I've been waiting for you to walk through this door for a long time. (laughs) And he was this, Public affairs officer, the State Department, at the end of the road, in his mind, yeah, yeah. he was a blue, disgruntled bluegrass player. Uh-huh. He said, you come back next year, and I'll put you on the road. So in 87, John and I go back. We play 60 cities in India. And from then on, I'd still go back and play with Jerry Jeff from time to time. But I, I started playing these foreign tours. Now I've gone to 32 countries, and I've done... Uh, you know, all over the Middle East, all over India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, all over Africa. You know, it's a great program, and we go there and, and play from time to time. You're still doing the same history, I mean, the same No, no, story I, I had changed it. When I realized, especially in the 90s, uh, I started doing more of my stuff. And what they were really interested in is what I'm doing now, and I became a storyteller 
doing these tours because they had never heard any of this stuff, especially in India. They'd never heard of Hank Williams or even Willie Nelson or the, who they knew is Kenny Rogers. Play some Kenny Rogers. <laughs> or, or, or they knew Rhinestone Cowboy. Do you know that one? And uh, so I had, you know, I actually would learn some of this stuff. So they would, and the, the most famous song in the world I learned, which was John Denver's Country Road. Growing like a breeze, country roads take me home to the place I belong, West Virginia, Mountain Mama, take me home, country roads. In refugee camps, Pakistan, they knew the lyric, knew the words, country roads, take me home, all over the world. Yeah. They knew the song. So I did this, I opened the show with country roads. I'd say, I'm going to take you walking down some country roads, tell you stories. And I would do this song and immediately the audience was at ease saying, so this is American country. Me, okay. You know, cause then they're all singing along for a song. Well, as the time went by and I, I started making my own records and stuff, I would t- still tell stories, but I would do a lot of my songs, but still do country roads and, and, and do some songs that they would know. Because you're playing not only for, a lot of times you're playing for the local people, but you're also playing for the foreign service of every country that's mm-hmm. associated with it. You know, in the ambassador's residence with this beautiful scene, Fortress America, and playing with local musicians uh, from, from whether they're Arab or Indian or Pakistani, they would arrange that they would have these local musicians at the show where they would do a, a few songs, but we would, I get to play with them. And invariably, the like the Indian musicians go, no, it's not going to work. East and West does not meet. We play in different modes, different time signatures. I said, no, I tell you, it'll work. I can tell you it's going to work. I don't think so. Let me just play a song and then you play yours. I don't, I'm, a, I'm not at all comfortable playing with you. And I said, this is the beat. Oh, you mean that beat? Well, I can play that beat. It's like that Bo Diddle and Buddy Holly not fade away is the primal beat in all cultures. It turns and so they're going, okay. You know, and immediately the bridge is made, the wall's torn down, and we're playing Not Fade Away, which has the great message, love is real. Yeah. Not Fade Away. Now, you know, we're going to do this song here. I was, uh, I was actually raised in Lubbock, Texas. There was a boy. His name was Buddy Holly. And Buddy would probably love this idea of having his songs done all over, the, all over India and Pakistan and Bangladesh. And we've had tabla. We've had these experiments placed before, and... Uh, kind of works out pretty good and this is a song that buddy holly wrote probably well you can imagine he was in senior high at lubbock high school and there was this beautiful young girl across the aisle from him and he kept looking at her all year long but he couldn't ever get up the courage to say anything to her so he went home and he wrote this song about her and it's how big his love was for her and so we're going to try it here
baby, how it's gonna be You're gonna give your love to me Love to last a both night and day Love is real and not fade away Beautiful, and you're back to Lubbock. And we're back to Lubbock. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. A friend of mine got to play with uh, Bo Diddley, and uh, he, like Chuck Berry, would just show up and use local musicians yeah. for the gig. And they're sitting there a few minutes before the show, and he finally comes in and says, we're going to do this and that. And the, the piano player is sitting off to the left, and he's got his, his pen and paper, and he's going, son, what are you doing there? And he goes, well, I'm just going to write down the changes. He goes... Son, there ain't no change. I'm both Italy. Changes. <laughs> well, uh, did some of the uh, obviously? Uh, now I know this, but uh, for our, our listeners, the collaboration with the Indian uh, musicians. Uh, you've done some of that here in Texas. So were they? Uh, Indians that you played with here, where they just happened to be living here, or did you meet any of them over there, and they came? Brought them to Texas. Was there? How did all that happen with the collaborations on Uniteds in the U.S. In in, in ni- 1994, I'd come off this tour in India, and I was in. I was still there, and I went back to. And my wife Iris was there, and and I said, you know, I, I just I just think I ought to do something with this. And I had heard I'd uh, at some point I'd gone to back to Austin, and I had gone to a house concert that Will Taylor played. And he had got a grant from the city of Austin cultural contract department where he could play shows and he would do shows. He would do, he'd do had fundraisers, but he would do schools, a lot of schools and theaters and stuff like that. And so I'd met him and at some point, uh, and he told me how to, you know, and, and I thought, you know, this would be, this would be great. I want to. I want to do one of these things. So when I was back in India, Iris and I uh, started thinking about this show and how would it, you know, end up and what would what would it be like and and we looked for ways that e- the juxtaposition of east and west and uh, uh, looked some poetry, all kinds of stuff. Who had done this kind of thing before? Well, I got back to Texas and uh, I had. I met with my old friend, Bobby Bridger, who's a great, you know, singer-songwriter, wrote musicals, uh, and he and I wrote this kind of centerpiece, this, this song called Cowboys and Indians, and it was that, that, that juxtaposition of East and West. Colors vanish from your sight 
but not the cowboys in Indiana. And we wrote another song called Mahatma Gandhi and Sitting Bull. And then we had like these three or four or five songs. And then I uh, <clears throat> applied for a grant from the city of Austin. And I told them what it would be like. And they had to have a site visit where the Austin Arts Commission comes to see you play. Well, I had no gigs. I had no band yet. It was just me and John Inman. But they came to my house and we served them some tea and cookies and stuff like that. And then we had a little show and I explained to them what was going to happen in this show. This yet to be a band. And I would say, this is where the tablas come in. And I'd make these sounds with my, and we played the song Cowboys and Indians and Mahatma Gandhi, and they were all there and they loved it. They said, this sounds great. So they gave me the grant. I went out looking for some musicians from India and I found a great tabla player. His name was Alok Dutta. He was fantastic. Ended up finding another tabla player named Oliver Rajamani. We had a sitarist from time to time, but it was me and John, these tabla players. Paul Pierce, he played percussion. So we had Indians and cowboys. We called it cowboys and Indians, mm-hmm. but it was different kind of Indians. And we had yeah. had Native American Indians from time to time. And so I wrote this kind of loose musical and the show is called Cowboys and Indians, and we played in uh, schools. I've been funded since 1995. This is our, uh, what is it? 21, 22 years now. 22 years, 20, 21, 22 years anniversary, and I've just been funded again. And so we're, uh, we, we still use a lot of those songs, but we change it from time to time and, and add new stuff. But that's been my real love of trying to figure out how to, um, make this East and West meet. Oh, it's fantastic. What a wonderful cultural experience to have in life. Uh, will you be doing a performance in uh, Texas in 2016? <clears throat> yes, uh, we'll, we're going to be playing six shows this season in Austin. We also play some, I mean, we've played the Hobby Center in Houston for every school kid and they bust them in for a week. We've played the, done the same thing in Dallas at the uh, Will Rogers Auditorium, the Imagination Celebration. So we've played a lot of, and we need, we, we're, we're just gearing up for our new season. And um, <clears throat> so we'll be doing that. But in the meantime, I wrote and have had new records come out. Uh, uh, the first one was called Mahatma Gandhi and Sitting Bull. I knew I made a big mistake when I named the album that because I was in Lubbock doing a radio show and you know how they you know they, they talked to you for a while and play a song and this one DJ and the DJ was one of Buddy Holly's old friends. This guy was from uh, KLLL and uh, and I'm on on the radio station and he goes well that was Bob Livingston and uh, uh, from his new album Mahatma Gandhi and Sitting Bull, and he just looked at me like, <laughs> and I knew I, I had made a mistake, so I re-released it as Original Spirit, which yeah. is a song off the record, and we, and uh, because I knew, oh yeah, I made a mistake. Mm-hmm. 
Mahatma Gandhi and Sitting Bull were lying in the sun around the swimming pool, talking about breaking all the rules and listening to the radio. The Mahatma winked and he flashed a grin. He said, "The Wild East is where I've been. If you've seen it once, you gotta see it again. You gotta see the Himalayan snows." Well, Sitting Bull, he said, "Gandhi G, it's the Great Plains for me. Chasing buffalo and living free, and watching all my children grow." Well, Gandhi pulled his weaver's thread and he spun some yarns. Then he said, "No need for the Tibetan Book of the Dead to know which way the spirit goes." So that was a record, did pretty good. And then in, in 2011, I, I put this record out called Gypsy Alibi. Mm -hmm. It won the Album of the Year at Texas Music Awards. And so I'm just now coming up to, in April, we're going to be recording a new album on Howling Dog Records. And that'll be coming out sometime this year. Gypsy Alibi drives me crazy. You ain't no gypsy, you're just lazy Fortune teller, Madam Wu Hear her laughing in the back room All those nights on the caravan, queen of hearts Wrote a lot. Hopefully that 17 will be a big year. Welcome back to the Atticus Report. What a great, great storyteller Bob Livingston is. Could have sat there and listened to him all day telling stories. Guess we'll have to wait for the book, though. As he mentioned in the interview there, that uh, he is working on a book and uh, expected to be done late 2016, early 2017. Certainly be on the lookout for that. Maybe we can have him back on a future show after the book comes back and talk about that. Stephen, I didn't know Bob until this interview. Had never met him. Only knew him by his musical reputation and everything. And you've known him, you know, for years and years and years. Um, man, what a what a fun guy to spend some time with. And I wish we would have had more time to do it. Um, how did you, how did you meet Bob? I'm I'm not sure that we actually covered that in the interview. I met Bob in, in passing uh, years back, just probably at some show or club. But I've only really got to know him more fairly recently. And uh, one of the things we did together that brought us closer was uh, the memorial that we did for Stephen Fromholtz at the Kerrville Folk Festival. And uh, I got to know him uh, from that point on. We decided we would play together on occasion. And uh, uh, the more I, uh, time I spent with him, the 
the better I was for it. I just really uh, uh, love Bob and love his music, love working with him. And uh, everybody should be on the lookout for him if he's coming to a theater near you or a club or a coffee shop. Uh, you'll certainly love spending an evening with Bob Livingston. He has some wonderful music, and he's a wonderful guy doing great work in the world. Just the kind of person, just the kind of artist we like to have on the Atticus Report. And speaking of that, on our next episode of the Atticus Report, we're going to be visiting with our good friend, Salvadoran musician Mauricio Callejas, and hearing about his tales, listening to his music. Mauricio is a wonderful fellow. Stephen, you produced uh, one of Mauricio's records in the past several years. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Maiko was the name of his record, and it was a real joy for me. I was very honored to be asked to do it, and I I told him, I said, well, we might have a problem. I don't speak fluent Spanish, and he says, well, you make good records. And so well, there I, you go. I told him I'd like to do the record with him if he would educate me. And, uh, and so once a week he would come to my my house and play me different styles of cumbias and boleros and different styles of a. Uh, of Latin music and rhythms, because it's such a big part of the of the music, which we'll we'll get into uh, as we uh, go into Mauricio's music. But he's he just writes differently than than uh, people from around here do. Uh, his use of imagery and uh, it really evokes the, where he's from, El Salvador. And uh, we'll also be talking about the reasons why he's uh, ha has come to Austin and lives now with his wife uh, here as opposed to El Salvador. Well, good. We'll be looking forward to that episode then with Mauricio Callejas on the next Atticus Report. In the meantime, we want to thank you for joining us today and being part of this conversation with Bob Livingston, the Cosmic Cowboy. Be looking forward to his book in the coming year. In the meantime, enjoy this musical break from Mauricio Callejas, and we'll be right back. If you have enjoyed this episode, we would appreciate your support of the show by subscribing on iTunes or at our website, www.atticusreport.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Atticus Report. You can find the Atticus Report on Facebook and Instagram, and we would love it if you'd be willing to share it with your friends. And speaking of friends, we'd like to thank some of our friends for helping to make the Atticus Report possible. Kiana Shantese, who manages all of our graphic design and website details, Carolyn Soames, who keeps the social media and YouTube channels moving. 
Cole Hoffpower and Monty McWilliams at North Fork Studios for all of their production skills. The Atticus Report is produced by Atticus Record and distributed by DBM Entertainment. On behalf of myself, Rick Busby, and my co-host, Stephen Doster, we want to thank you again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we go searching for music that's good for something. 